Welcome back to Enlighten Up for episode 61, EFT, Dream Warnings, Consciousness Malware, and EMF Toxicity with Larry Burke. Larry Burke joins the conversation today to discuss many things. Oh, he's done a TED Talk on the health warnings of our dreams and if they are actually significant enough to pay attention to. Yeah, we're going to talk about uh, electromagnetic frequency toxicity. We're going to talk about the 5G rollouts and why we need to be a little bit concerned about that. We're also going to talk about his actual TED Talk and how it got censored. Uh, and why did that happen? Is this normal for TED Talk to do? And what are the things that trigger censorship. We are currently in the midst of experiencing a lot of censorship from people who are speaking up against the establishment. So this is an interesting conversation to have. We're also going to talk about EFT. What is that? Is That is the emotional freedom technique. It is a tapping technique. And we're going to get into uh, what that means, why we can do it, and how it works to heal our body from the emotional stress of certain traumatic events in our life. Uh, we're going to talk about near-death experiences and the transformative effects that they have on people. We're also going to talk about the medical system and how it's becoming its own cancer and will eventually implode and die. And towards the end, we're going to get into the shadow trickster and what that means for the current political system. Uh, All of this is coming up in the episode, so let's jump right in and find out what Larry had to share with us. Welcome back to Enlighten Up, everyone. I am Nicole Frolic, and I'm here with Lisa and Brian, as always. And today we are joined by a guest who is a holistic radiologist and dream tapping coach who has a book out called Dreams That Can Save Your Life, Early Warning Signs of Cancer and Other Illnesses. His name is Larry Burke, and he is... Um, a trained acupuncturist and in, in, in hypnosis and is a certified energy health practitioner. So he's got a lot of uh, great information to share with us and we're really excited to have him on the show. So Larry, welcome to the show. How are you? Uh, thanks. It's good to make a connection with you folks. Thanks for being on. Yeah, it's great to have you on the show. So um, Larry, can you just give us and your uh, audience a uh, bit of information about you? I know you you started out in the, I guess, the Western medicine health field, but you've transitioned more into Eastern philosophy in some ways. Uh, how did that all come about? Uh, yeah, I started out in the 80s, uh, getting in on the ground floor of magnetic resonance imaging uh, at a time when... Uh, as a radiology resident, uh, CT scanning was the was was the hot topic at that moment, and it came MRI came out while I was a resident. And to be honest, I thought my first reaction to the fuzzy pictures on MRI and, and the clunky looking machines was, "Oh, that's bullshit. That'll never amount to anything." Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then and then I turned out to be pretty wrong about that when I I got my first MRI physics lecture from uh, the guy who won the Nobel Prize for developing MRI, and I was hooked and and really pioneered that as an, as an alternative to the usual way of doing diagnosis for uh, bones and joints, which is my specialty. So my very first paper in MRI was about looking at MRI scans of the knee and comparing it to what the surgeons found when they went into the knee and whether they found the meniscal tear. And eventually we did away with most of the invasive arthrograms where you got to stick needles into people's uh, knee, uh, inject dye. Uh, we only do that rarely now for the shoulder. And so that was sort of an alternative diagnostic method that I, I, I was involved in uh, at the very beginning. And that actually eventually led me into alternative medicine because 
I noticed that a lot of the people who were coming for MRI scans were claustrophobic and didn't want to go in that, in that narrow tube. Uh, and I had two choices. I could give them IV Valium and Valium, everybody loves Valium, but sometimes uh, you forget to breathe when you're inside the MRI scanner, which is a no-no since you're in there for an hour and breathing is important. And yeah. so I, it's so kind, I learned of, it's kind of imperative. <laughs> it's kind of imperative. Yeah. So I learned hypnosis is an alternative to giving people drugs to get them through the MRI scanner. And it's also as a way of sort of empowering them to use their own resources that they might not have even been aware that they had to, to get through a scary uh, situation, which, and then they could use it later when they went to the dentist. And I sort of, that was my entree into the whole field of, of hypnosis and then alternative medicine and I eventually did learn acupuncture which was another spin-off from my MRI days because I was interested in the health effects of electromagnetic fields and I read a book called The Body Electric by Robert Becker who a lot of people are probably familiar with. He was the orthopedic surgeon who invented bone healing with electricity which was also considered an alternative technique way back then. Uh, but he also, when Nixon came back from China in 1972, one of his reporters who went with him and had appendicitis got surgery in a Chinese hospital, but then they called the acupuncturist afterwards for his post-operative pain, and he got miraculously better and wrote an article in the New York Times. And everybody in the whole country came out of the Chinatowns and put their shingles out and said, oh, we're going to advertise acupuncture. And the National Institutes of Health pretty much freaked out. And they didn't know how it worked, so they gave Becker a million dollars to find out how acupuncture works. And one of his grad students figured out that you could measure the skin resistance over the traditional acupuncture points and the resistance would actually go down over the points showing that there was an electrophysiological correlate for acupuncture points which in in the book uh, chapter it, there's a little caption that says objective basis of in reality for acupuncture and then i knew i wanted to study acupuncture so yeah no, well, that's I, I lived in i lived in china for five years and i can attest that Chinese hospitals are scary places. Ha, yeah. <laughs> they uh, combine uh, Western techniques and Eastern techniques in sort of a haphazard way. So, yeah. Yeah, and cleanliness is not the beacon. Yeah. So that's really interesting that your kind of entry point was through the hypnosis of wanting to calm your patients down so that they were able to at least have the testing done. And um, so what was it though about medicine that kind of had you departing it somewhat and, and moving more into a, a more alternative method? Well, I'd say my departure started in my second year of medical school when, <laughs> when we had learned uh, all the elegant, uh, signaling pathways of the body in biochemistry and in physiology and i really enjoyed that part but then the next class in the second year was pharmacology where you just found all these clever ways to block the body's natural signaling mechanisms and i and all the drugs that came out of that and i just never resonated with that at all and as a result the only drug i ever learned to prescribe was valium for claustrophobia and i'm proud to say i've never written a prescription for anything else in the last 40 years. So, uh, and I, I eventually started realizing through my, my own encounters taking a few pharmaceuticals that the side effects were often worse than the benefits. And, but people were so willing to attempt to suppress their symptoms 
at any cost, that they would, the, the, the side effects were just a uh, uh, cost-benefit analysis that people said, well, it's worth it to have these side effects to get rid of those symptoms at any, any cost. And, and so that was, early on in medical school, I knew there was something wrong with that system. It took me years to figure out exactly uh, what was going on in terms of we were really shooting the messenger from the sacred messenger from the body are, are the symptoms that are telling us how our life is out of balance and we can either pay attention to them or attempt to get rid of them. That makes so much yeah. sense. We've, I mean, we've talked about this on our show, several podcasts, cause we're really into uh, proper health um, and, and finding ways to uh, work with the body as opposed to against it. And, you know, Lisa, you said so many times that doctors are taught to prescribe drugs. They're not really taught to um, heal. heal. Yeah. <laughs> they're medical doctors. That's what they're trained to do. Find a medicine that will cure your symptom. And cure might be too strong of a word. I would just say suppress. Suppress. Yes. Yeah, much, cool. much better word. Yeah. And you know you so you've got this great article out that you've uh, that you've written um, called uh, "Transforming Symptoms in the Healthcare System: A Near Death Experience Model." Can you go into that a little bit? Yeah, I've been uh, toying uh, with with this idea for for quite a few years, probably since the early '90s when I I really came across a whole wave of books on near death experiences. It really started in 1990, 91. They're, they're a York, string of New York Times bestsellers with light in the title. It was transformed, first was Closer by the Light, then Transformed by the Light, then Saved by the Light, then Embraced by the Light. And they all shot to the top of New York Times bestsellers from 90 to 93. And that had a big impact on me. Now, the first wave of near-death experience books were really Raymond Moody's books in the, in the 1970s. He was the one who really coined the term NDE. And, and the NDE books seemed to come in waves in the public consciousness. So that, that period in 1990 to 1993 was really big for me, especially when the research was starting to show that the NDEs had a powerful transformative effect on the, the people who experienced them. And there were four things that they cited they came back with no fear of death. They had a sense of altruistic purpose for coming back. Uh, they had increased psychic abilities. And I'm, I'm describing this to actually one of my radiology fellows who I was training in, in 1995. And he starts getting really pale as I'm telling this uh, to him. And we'd never talked about metaphysical things for the whole year. I, I worked with him until the last week. And I'm telling this, and he goes, well, when I was 10, I had a skiing accident, was in a coma for a week. And when I came back, I was, you know, I had no fear of death. I had, you know, a sense of purpose. I used to be the class clown. Then I came back as a straight A student. I, have, I always know it's on the other end of the phone when I pick it up. And I go, hey, wh where's your watch? And he goes, ah, oh, I can't wear watches. They stop all the time. My oh, wife's always taking them to get them fixed. And the fourth characteristic is, is people have electromagnetic sensitivities and, and some physiologic alterations in their system as if they've been reset by the uh, the NDE. And so those are the four characteristics that not everybody has all four of them, but a lot of people have significant personality and physiologic transformations after their NDEs. Oh, that's, you know, you bring up the watch is really interesting because 
when I was 20, I sought out a naturopathic doctor who was even unconventional as a naturopathic doctor because she did a whole bunch of different stuff like past life regression, dolphin brain repatterning, uh, tapping, all this stuff. And the first thing she said to me was, well, there were two things she said to me. She says, stop using the shampoo you're using. It's too fragrant. Like it's too much perfume. And then um, she said to me, don't ever wear your watch again. And I was just like, oh, really? How come? She says, it's going to interfere with your uh, frequency. I was like, oh. And ever since then, I've never worn a watch again. When I was 20, it was the last time I wore a watch. In fact... I, I was still wearing the watch and somehow it fell off me at the beach and I lost it. And so I figured that was just a sign that I wasn't supposed to wear it anymore. But well, um, yeah, that was the other rabbit hole I went down during my MRI days was I was on the National Safety Committee for MRI. And one of the things we were concerned about was do the magnetic fields and radio frequencies in the scanner have any sort of health effects? Right. And so I, I joined the Bioelectromagnetic Society started going to meetings with all these high-level physicists and engineers who were looking at the health effects of magnetic fields. And ironically, that was back in the days before cell phones. That was in the late 80s. And the big interest was in effects from power lines and, and radar. Uh, and one of my best friends through that group was the EPA's EMF uh, res- star researcher. And his lab got shut down in the late 80s. And they said, ah, there's nothing going on here. Not, pay no attention to any of those electromagnetic field effects. Ironically, just at the, at the time when cell phones were starting to take off. So I've been following that for, for 20, 30 years. And now there's really huge issues with electromagnetic field toxicity uh, that are getting worse every year, uh, not only with uh, just Wi-Fi, but now we're going to be dealing with 5G rollouts all over the, the country uh, in the coming year where our cell phones are being ramped up from 4G to 5G. And also they're putting smart meters everywhere, too. So all those are sources of EMF toxicity. And the 5G is particularly disturbing because <clears throat> right now, we, if, you do, if you go to antennasearch.com, you can find the location of every cell phone tower in the country. And you'll notice usually around your, your city, there's one every half mile or maybe every mile. But with 5G, the frequency is going up, and the higher the frequency, the less uh, well the, the uh, energy travels through space. So they're going to have to have more transmitters. So there's, there, it looks like we're going to have a cell phone tower on every other telephone pole. So the likelihood of having one in your front yard is going to be pretty high. Wow. Yeah. I've um I've seen a lot of videos on the 5G and how awful it is going to be for us and our health and that really the only reason why they're really pushing it it's at least the way they're selling it is that we're going to have faster downloads and faster uploads and everything's just going to be faster for us and I think if people really understood the cost to their health uh, from what these these 5G networks are going to bring. And Lisa, have you seen any of the videos on the 5G? I have. It's scary. What are the costs to our health? Uh, yeah, at this point, we, there's no research. They, they're not even doing any research on it. Um, there's already a lot of research been done over the last 20 years, but there's nobody proving that a 5G is safe. That's not even on the industry's radar screen. Uh, they When I went I went to the North Carolina legislature and testified at the 5G hearings. And, and I, I was as passionate as I could be and used as much scientific you know, credibility as possible. And I said, 
uh, your kid's not going to care if, if they can download their video faster if they've got a brain tumor. You know? You're right. So, they're not. So is that and, the major problem with 5G is cancer? Uh, that's one of the big ones, but but also can be disrupting the immune system and causing yeah. a, a physiologic and stress to the whole system. And infertility, I understand, is also infertility. one. Yeah, and, and I, uh, of course, my, my testimony had a big impact. The, uh, the, the measure for the, the past 5G uh, sailed through the legislature 52 yes votes to zero nay votes. And uh, there's a billion-dollar industry pushing this through. And, and, yeah. Not surprised. Yeah, yeah, it's really, and it's that's quite scary. Um, I'm I'm hoping that somehow it doesn't um, go through. Something gets stopped with it because I just don't see how. I mean, we're already a pretty sick nation um, with all the things that we have to go up against. But I don't know. That one's a little bit. That one's actually really scaring me. The five G one. Yeah, and I'm looking at it sort of as an inevitable force of evolution it, it, it to really take a hard look at it it's like people who are <clears throat> sensitive to emf are either going to have to move to west virginia uh where there's the cell phone free zone around the, the bird radio telescope which is where a lot of people with emf sensitivity flee to uh huh. like, like 100 square miles that has really? no uh, no cell phones uh and either do that or uh, it's kind of like adapt or die it's like you we're gonna have to figure out a way to enhance our immune systems in a way that, that allows us to, to survive despite these onslaughts of uh, EMF toxicity. So. Which really just begs the question, like, who wants to do that for the sake of having just faster internet? <laughs> like, I just don't get it. Have you, like, have you not looked out your window? Everybody wants it. <laughs> no, but mm. at that kind of a cost, though, where your, your they, health is... They don't know. I, I know no one's speaking about that. Well, I don't want to say no one is, but that's not what's being um, pushed to the front. And if you said it, they would just say you're crazy. I'm not sick. It's the same thing that we talk about all the time with food and what's in these processed foods and people, you know, it keeps getting advertised, you know, to eat this and eat this and this is the way it is and sugar isn't causing any problems. It's fat or whatever the case may be. It's misinformation and you're the powers that be will guide you to where they want you to go in 20 or 30 years when we have some other sort of you know communication technology that's safer they will expose all of the you know the information that they knew back now just i mean just like you know tobacco and sugar and it'll be cell phones some sometime in the future there will be you know hearings and smoking guns and they knew they knew they knew <clears throat> Well, there, there was that wonderful movie about 10 years ago called Thank You for Smoking. I don't know right. if you ever saw that. It's definitely worth watching uh, because uh, the, in, in, the, in, the, in the movie, it's all about a lawyer who's a tobacco lobbyist. Mm -hmm. And he he's, goes through the whole movie uh, and they have the tobacco hearings about safety and health effects. And it finally, uh, despite his slickest arguments, it's clear that they're losing that argument. So the closing scene He's meeting with a bunch of Scandinavian cell phone executives. <laughs> That's right. I remember that. Oh. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I haven't seen that movie before. Neither have I. Um, Definitely worth watching. Definitely yeah, worth I'm going gonna, gonna to take a look at it. So, Larry, I'm curious to hear about this because um, this idea that you're really passionate about talking about this 
idea that symptoms are messages from the body to transform our lives. And it's really um, synchronistic because someone I care about has just um, been kind of getting these symptoms on his body that we've been able to isolate and figure out what the deeper root of it was. But it was really the body's way of trying to speak to him to change something in his life. So can you share with us more about this idea and topic? Yeah, I mean, that's a, a great uh, example of your friend, especially when it occurs on the skin. It's like, oh, that gets your attention almost immediately. A rash or hives or something like that is, is, is a way the body to, to send a signal loud and clear that other people will see it too, not only you. you know. And, and so uh, and usually when you go to a dermatologist for something like that, they're going to give you steroids or something to suppress it, and they're not going to look at any of the root causes, which you know, obviously can be emotional toxins, but also could be whatever. There's a big connection between the gut and the skin as well. Uh, and it could be toxic food or, or any number of Leaky other gut. disturbances of the microbiome. Leaky gut. And it turns out now the microbiome is, is very sensitive to the EMF insult as well. So those poor bugs in your in your stomach that are supposed to be cooperating with you are getting assaulted just like the rest of us are by the, by the EMF. So, uh, so yeah, I think the the messages from the body is 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 really a a big concept that most people in conventional medicine really don't want to hear, uh, and, and it's um and, and I've discovered over the years dealing with my own symptoms I've I've learned a lot from from starting to embrace them as messengers and the most interesting one for me has been my my shoulder pain that I had for many many years uh, that seemed to be connected to my first marriage and started improving as soon as I got divorced. Uh, then I got a frozen shoulder on the other side, which was related to my anger about the political uh, system in the, in, during the heart of the Bush administration in, in 2006. And I realized, okay, my shoulder is telling me I'm really angry and there's nothing I can do about it. Uh, so after working through a lot of those issues with tapping and a variety of other methods, I finally made a sort of an agreement with my shoulders. It's kind of like my shoulders. You can be quiet if I'm on track. If I'm angry or some in some other way emotionally out of balance, give me some pain and, and, and let me know. And so I've, I've been able to create this relationship with my shoulders that they only hurt when I'm angry or have some other repressed emotion that I'm not paying attention to. And then I'll get the message by tapping and working on it, and then they'll be fine. And my shoulders are stronger than they've been in. in 30 years, thank goodness. So. so what is it about the body that you think is trying to communicate with people? Like, why do you think that's happening? Well, I think that um, people like to talk about the subconscious in Freudian or Jungian terms in, in, in psychotherapy. And it's sort of this nebulous subconscious thing. It's We're not exactly sure where it is. Well, I, to be honest, I'm starting to think that the subconscious lives in the body. And all those things that you're not consciously aware of play out in your body. And that's our best access to what's going on at a deeper subconscious level or the messages our body sending us, that and, the, and what we're getting through dreams. Uh, so my two interests right now are the messages from the body that come when you're awake in terms of symptoms and the messages that come when you're asleep and in your dreams. And there's a lot of overlap between those, those two uh, ways of dialoguing with, with, with the subconscious because you can also think about uh, our conscious waking life as a waking dream. 
it works the same way as interpreting dreams when you're asleep as interpreting the, the signs and the signals you're getting during the day when you're awake. Well, you've done a TED Talk on this topic of dreams trying to speak to you to basically save your life in certain, like some people that you know, it saved their life um, and caught cancer before any of the symptoms were really showing. But is it, I don't know if I've understood this correctly, have they all censored your video in a little bit of a way, that particular video? Yeah, yeah that was kind of a fun experience. Uh, I, I when I, I giving a TED talk is, is interesting to begin with because I I had no idea exactly what goes on in the background from watching a lot of TED talks and then once I'm in the middle of preparing for one, you realize there's I have three different coaches. You know, one coach who was my personal coach for my get my message out. The second one was my gesture coach. Every hand motion, every step uh, that I took was choreographed, and it's like if the TED talks look choreographed, it's because they are. Uh, really? And then, Interesting. Oh, absolutely. And then, and then the third coach was my PowerPoint coach, who said you cannot use slides with larger, smaller than a sixty font uh, point, sixty point font, because you can only have a few words right. per slide. And so that was all totally transformed the way I usually, usually give a talk. So, and then uh, my coach also said, "You're a, can, a doctor giving a talk on a controversial subject about dreams." Uh, that I needed to speak to the audience as if every single person was a skeptic. And I've been used to talking to groups probably like your audience. They're more interested in this whole uh, realm and a lot of, like preaching to the choir. But this was really preaching to just a mainstream audience. And so that was actually really good advice. I did exactly as they uh, uh, suggested. And the advice from my coach was don't be Dr. Sedona, which I thought was pretty interesting. <laughs> so, <laughs> Don't talk about the, the dream vortexes or anything else. You know, it's like uh, so, so. I was very grounded in my talk and didn't make any outrageous claims, and it got accepted through the TED system. And I got seven thousand views on YouTube, and then unfortunately, uh, a couple months later, I I guess I poked the bear. Okay, because TED is known for censoring folks like Rupert Sheldrake and Graham Hancock, and I knew that was possible. But what happened was they. They offer it a million-dollar TED prize every year to some worthy TED speaker with a great project who is asking for funding to take their research and project to the next level. So I submitted this ambitious million-dollar proposal to do advanced dream research and really take dreams to a whole other level in medicine. And a week later, they slapped the censorship thing on my talk. Oh, just for applying for the grant? Well, I think I drew attention to myself. I'd sort of been under the radar enough that their censorship had missed me, and and this just drew attention to it. And so a week later, I get this a red banner that goes across the uh, the images saying, and and then a disclaimer that says this talk does not meet TED's scientific criteria. You know, and it's, and I made the point that my first MRI paper uh, back in 1987 was just like my the paper that was the basis for my TED talk. I just had 20 MRI in the knees and compared it to the surgery. In this case, I had 20 dream dreams and compared it to the to the surgery. And it was it wasn't a randomized controlled trial. It wasn't no control group or right. anything. And and I said this is just a pilot study. And so that wasn't good enough for them. So. Well, it's interesting because we actually have a question from 
one of our listeners that's come in and I think this is the perfect time to ask it. Um, she was, she's interested on, um, body work and unexplained or expected memories and how the, this is connected to our consciousness or spirituality. Um, I know this person, she herself is going through a huge journey with her own body, um, trying to, um, heal something like her body's gone through a lot. Uh, and it's, and it's a very slow moving, um, healing process for her, but she's asking about looking at experiences, um, through this idea of memories and dreams. And I'm wondering if you have anything to share on how dreams can help people understand or work with their body. Yeah. Um, that's a great uh, question because uh, most experienced body workers who, who are intuitive will, will tell stories about clients who just have amazing emotional upheavals when they're just touching a part of their body that maybe hasn't been touched in a while and, and there's some repressed memory there about abuse or some other uh, traumatic experience that gets released during the body work. And, and I think that's a pretty common experience. Uh, and I guess if we, if we look at the body as full of these kind of messages, when I'm doing EFT work with people, I, I attempt to explain it by saying, look, every negative thing that ever happened to you is like a malware program. It gets downloaded into your system. From the EFT perspective, it's getting downloaded into the acupuncture meridians. Uh, that then gets uploaded into the limbic system in your brain, and there's a file up there for every negative thing that ever happened to you. It has a picture, a story, and a program that will run. And if you think about a military veteran who comes back from Iraq or Afghanistan with all these traumatic experiences, they've got a whole bunch of different malware programs in there that run all crazy times of the night, get triggered by almost anything, and that causes all the flashbacks that they have. And the way they get treated with EFT is we just look for the name of that file and then have them repeat the name of the file run that program intentionally and then you're tapping on the acupuncture points on the on the face and the chest and essentially hitting the delete key over and over again and uninstalling the program and that's, that's actually amazing. how it works that's interesting. <laughs> yeah I mean, and it's, it's amazing because then once you install one uninstall one program and they go and, and you can tell it's uninstalled because you go back to the file you find the file name again the picture's still there the story's still there but the program doesn't run your body. And if, if your body's not connected to the story, then you have, that's the definition of emotional freedom. And, and then you can ask them, okay, what other programs would you like to uninstall? So your friend who's having that experience with body work probably has a lot of programs running and, and, and the key, you just really need to uninstall one at a time and do it fairly systematically. And over a period of weeks, if you work on uninstalling one program a day, and Gary Craig, who developed EFT, would refer to that as the personal peace process, and see how much lighter you feel after a couple weeks of uninstalling programs. And I think you'll notice some major changes in your sense of well-being. You'll certainly feel a lot lighter if, if you unload a lot of those programs. That's interesting. I mean, we've ha been having several guests on the show lately, and talking about how we're very much like computers and that we can download programs and change the way, uh, just change the way we look at life, respond to life, uh, and, and, and in effect our health, uh, just through changing these old belief systems, which are like programs 
and re replacing them with something that's a lot more supportive to us. And, you know, when I first kind of moved into this idea of understanding how our whole system works through our consciousness, the idea of thinking like I was like a computer kind of didn't sit well with me. I wasn't very receptive to the idea, but the more and more I hear this, the more and more it just makes sense. And it's really hard to uh, deny that that's what's going on. Right. It's also a nice thing that people can relate to that metaphor too. It's like, Oh yeah, I, I get it. I got programs that I want to delete. And uh, so, so what, uh, and I find that, when the EFT is deleting the negative programs and then the hypnosis is putting in the programs you want. And so when I do coaching with someone and, I, and I'm, I've been sort of moving away from the therapy model into the coaching model, I'm, I'm working with my original EFT teacher, uh, Carol Look, and, and I've just started doing a lot of online uh, coaching with people where we really look at the goals that they have for their life and, and what they want to heal, where they want to go. And then look at the barriers, the reasons that that's not happening, and use the tapping to uninstall those those programs that are blocking you, and then put in the, the new programs, programs that you're looking for. I just mentioned people can uh, download uh, my uh, free nine-minute EFT tapping protocol, a little video at LarryBurkeMD.com, or my, my three websites are LarryBurke.com, LetMagicHappen.com or LarryBurkeMD.com, they all take you to the same place. Well, okay. I mean, I know what EFT is. I don't know if Lisa and Brian do. No. Um, do you guys know? No. So maybe, um, Larry, could you explain to our audience what the emotional freedom technique is? Uh, sure. Uh, it was developed. I learned it back uh, 20 years ago when I was studying acupuncture and hypnosis. And Cheryl Richardson, who's one of the famous uh, life coaches who who actually came to Duke and gave a keynote at our major conference in 2002 and heard I was doing acupuncture and, and hypnosis and said, well, how come you're not doing EFT? Well, I had never heard of it. And she sent me to Gary Craig's website and I uh, realized that this was exactly what I was looking for. I, I read that what was then the 80 page free manual online <clears throat> and I went in, I was teaching a stress management class at, for Duke undergrads. And I told them about this new technique I learned. And one of the students came up and said, well, I've got, I've got a big problem. I think I need, I need to use that. And I, and I said, uh, well, what's going on? She said, well, I have really bad hives for the last two weeks. Since I had a car accident on the Jersey Turnpike, uh, my car spun around in the rain, hit a telephone pole, airbag went off. I didn't have any physical injuries, but the hives have been really bothering me since then. I've been to student health. They gave me some Benadryl. The hives kind of went away, but I got too drowsy from the antihistamine. And I couldn't study, so I went off the antihistamine. All the hives came back. I still couldn't study because I was too itchy. And, and, and she, she goes, I like to do the tapping, but I, I got to get to my next class in 25 minutes. And I said, oh, it probably won't take that long. And I, I frankly had no idea at the time. And, and all I had was a one-page cheat sheet from this 80-page manual <laughs> telling me how to do it. So... Uh, and I said, okay, let, let's, let's follow directions. And it says, just pick a, a phrase that uh, captures your emotional experience. She goes, scary car accident. I said, zero to 10. Uh, how intense is that for you? Zero being you can't feel it at all. 10 being the worst thing you've ever felt in your body in your life. And she said, about a six. But it didn't look like a six. It looked more higher than that. So I said, add some more 
emotional words to your phrase. She said, scary thought I was going to die car accident. That man, that bumped it up to an eight, which looked about right. And I said, okay, next instructions are just start tapping on that phrase. Scary thought I was going to die car accident over and over again with usually with the middle finger and you go down the, the eyebrow point, the side of the eye, the under the eye, the under the nose, on the chin, on the collarbone, under the arm, uh, lower ribs and the top of the head, down one side and we down the other side. And she went from an eight to a four in about two minutes. And I thought, whoa, this is actually working. Uh, <clears throat> and so I said, okay, well, we only got a few more minutes. So the, the, the sheet said either repeat the same thing again or ask if there's another phrase that might even be more potent. So I said, is there anything worse than almost dying in a car accident? She said, I totaled my dad's car. It's like, okay, well, hi, hi, was that? That's scary. That's she funny goes, that that's, yeah, that's scarier than dying in a car accident. Yeah, so that turned out to be an 11 as, 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 as the numbers went. And so she tapped on guilty about my dad's car, guilty about my dad's car, and the number went down from 11 to a 2, which I thought was a miracle. And I thought, whoa, this is good. And I, she had to go to her class. So I said, here, just take this cheat sheet, tap whenever you need to, and don't take any more medicine and see what happens. So she came back to class two days later. She is beaming. She's really happy. She goes, well, I had no more hives, no more medicine. And I just tapped every time I got a little itchy. And then I think, well, that's good. And then she goes, and I tapped on all my other car accidents, which was like, huh? Uh, I, I. I had no idea she had any other car accidents, and she explained that, well, she figured out it worked to uninstall that, you know, first program. Might as well take care of the other ones, too. And, and, and as, a, as a, in my experience over the years, that's a fairly common theme is that trauma runs through people's lives in a repetitive pattern. <clears throat> and there's a good explanation for it is that if you have one car accident and you never uninstall the original program, you never regain your confidence in driving, and you're likely to have another car accident. You just keep stumbling forward in life, attracting more and more of the same traumas until you finally get prompted to go back and heal the original one. And that was my very first EFT case, and I've had amazing results ever since. That was that was. I think that speaks ago. to what you said wow. about dreams, that you know, dreams when we're sleeping are trying to bring things to our awareness, but your life is also a dream. And if you pay attention, there's things that are also trying to bring things to your awareness, like repetitive car accidents. Exactly. And then there's yep. yeah. yeah. And then there's people like me that don't believe in dreams telling us anything. Just that you're Ah yeah. It's, okay. just, it's just pictures. It's just like watching a a movie. It's just it's make believe. Yeah, and, and, and usually um when I when I was doing the TED talk I, I had three different uh proposed mechanisms for how the dreams might be warning people about their cancers. Uh, the first was the easiest for the skeptical mind to get, uh, to deal with, which was just these women actually had some symptoms that they were in denial of. And maybe a little lump they felt or some, some other problem with their breast, and the dream just brought it to their awareness. So that would be the, the simplest explanation. The second would be they didn't have any symptoms, but there's some subtle neurophysiologic mechanism signaling mechanism that gets the message to the subconscious and it comes out in some random pictures, like, like, like you said. Uh, or the third thing, which is, is the hardest to, to explain, is that many of the women in the breast cancer uh, study had white-coated doctors show up in their dream. 
and very detailed images of these, these healthcare professionals. And then a couple weeks later, they would meet them in the flesh because they were their surgeon or their, their nurse oncologist. Or, or, um, and it's hard to explain that from a mechanistic point of view because our physics doesn't explain things that bend the rules of, of time and space. But these are clearly precognitive experiences of the future sometimes a day or two, sometimes weeks uh, ahead of time. So that's the hardest thing to get and, your, and, your, your and mind And for around. me, it's, I think it's as simple as I've never had an experience like that. I've never had a precognitive dream mm -hmm. where I saw something and then, and then it happened. And, you know, I mean, a, a very small example that happened to Lisa the other, the other day, um, you know, about our cat and, she had the dream, and then that morning the cat did what happened in the dream, and you know that's okay. But I've I've never had anything like that happen. Well, okay, but I think also you would. I don't care. Okay, I'm going to ask you a question. Do you believe that you have no control over your thoughts and that they're just running through you without any control on your end whatsoever? My waking thoughts. I, I think there's a I think there's a difference between my intentional thoughts and my subconscious thoughts, but I would assume even if I if I really thought about my what my subconscious is doing, I'm sure it's it's planted and triggered by by things that I do. But I I would assume you're trying to get towards dreams. No, I don't I don't think that I have my. No, I'm asking you, in your waking life, do you believe that you have no, no control over your thoughts? No, I believe that I have thoughts? control over my thoughts. Yeah. Well, okay, well, the, so... The, the, I was going to say, the fascinating thing that this brings up is, is the whole idea of how someone develops their worldview, and whether it's based on data or whether it's based on experience. Because I think the most intriguing thing is... Uh, even there can uh, in the world of parapsychology that, that I, that I uh, live in part of the time, there are incredible research studies with p values of statistical significance out the wazoo to p zero 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 one, and the odds of, of it being a chance result of being millions to one. And people who come from a skeptical uh, point of view, like the skeptical inquirer, the amazing Randy. Uh, no amount of data is going to convince them that this is a real phenomenon. It's an experience that actually uh, changes people's worldview more than data. Right. In, that's, least we were that, talking that's about the, 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 other, the other night about, you know, again, where I'm from, Missouri, the show me state. I, I, I have to see it to yeah. believe it. Yeah, and, and it's interesting that um, this gets back a little bit to my original discussion about near-death experiences, uh, one of the things uh, that clearly happens when people have had an NDE is their worldview gets shifted dramatically. Now, one of the other things that seems to be happening is people who read their books also notice that their worldviews start to shift. So having the experience of reading about someone else's NDE or hearing them talk about it is a somewhat transformative experience in its own right. Now, Obviously, there's more gradual ways to transform your life than, than almost dying and coming back. Uh, but uh, I, I think that uh, there's a certain, and there's a growing number of, of people who have had these experiences. And, and I always like to 
to uh, point out this really major irony about the NDE uh, experience uh, experiencers is if you think about it, back in the 50s is when they developed the ventricular defibrillator device that would bring people back from a cardiac arrest with some degree of consistency. Prior to that, people who had a cardiac arrest were pretty much dead and didn't come back. And then it was 20 years later when Ray Moody wrote the first book on NDEs and brought it to the public awareness. Uh, now uh, we're looking at an increasing number of people being brought back from the dead on a daily basis. And we're talking about, uh, since it happens about 5% of people, we're talking millions of people having NDEs. And when they come back, they have this experience of no fear of death, altruistic sense of purpose, psychic abilities, electromagnetic sensitivities, and even healing abilities. And I start to think, well, these people, they haven't been just res resuscitated, they've been resurrected. And, and, and then start thinking about what's actually going on on the planet is we're getting a critical mass of people who have come back with qualities you could describe as almost Christ-like. So uh, I'm going to put this out there as, as uh, another radical idea and that the second coming is happening all around us. And it's a byproduct of our technology. The fact that we can resuscitate people with a, with a ventricular defibrillator is creating the second coming. That's very interesting. I think... I'm not sure what the evangelicals would think about that, but... Well, I'm pretty sure we know what they would think about that. <laughs> uh, but, I mean, that's because people are taking it so quite literally. Uh, and also that people believe that we're not like Jesus. Um, that Jesus is somehow better than us and that we can't all... I mean, Jesus's message was that we can do everything that he can and more. And that other perspective believes that we can't. So, I mean, I think it's great. I think it also speaks to the the waking up of consciousness, like people really be really kind of coming more into their awareness that there's more more to this world, more to their life, more to who they are than what they're being told. And I believe that in some way this has been programmed into our consciousness to allow these NDEs, these near-death experiences, for people to be occurring on such a larger scale than previously before. There's got to be a reason for it. And I think it's because like people like Brian need a kind of show-me thing, like they need proof. And if you get to a point where you have enough people experiencing something, there's a tipping point where people start to realize and take these experiences as validation to what's going on because there's no way that you can have, say, 50% of the population if it were to get to, say, that point. I think it's less than that that you need as a tipping point. But just for the sake of numbers, say, if you have 50% of the population having these experiences, coming back with this new, renewed sense of um, how they view the world and how they view their life and, and how they then come into the life with more service to others versus this more egoic sense of, of uh, self-service, that that's got to speak for something. Well, and also the, the fact is that the science is starting to catch up with the mystical point of view at the moment because uh, the top scientist in the world who someday deserves a Nobel Prize is, is Dean Radin, who's the director of research at the Institute of Nomadic Sciences, because he's, he's been doing these pre-sentiment experiments for the last 10 years where they basically show uh, two different sets of pictures to people 
in random uh, distribution. And one of the pictures will be really scary, disturbing images. The other one will be real pleasant, uh, you know, uh, nice images. And you won't know which one's going to pop up next. But they hook you up to physiologic measuring devices, galvanic skin response, pupillary response. And, and what they've been able to show is that a second or two before the scary picture is shown, your physiology starts to change. And they can predict based on their physiologic response, the pre-sentiment response, what the picture is going to be. And, and the nice thing about Dean is he doesn't publish those papers in parapsychology journals. He publishes in major physics journals. So it's out there with the quantum physics, uh, quantum physics discussion. And the one thing I, I've sort of hated over the years is when New Age healing people use the word quantum. Because it, it just as soon as I hear that, it kind of turns me off. I'm thinking like, okay, they're invoking quantum physics without really making a real connection to what they're doing. Uh, but here Dean is actually doing it. And he's got quantum physicists interested sure. in the research he's getting on a pre, on a precognitive, people's precognitive experiences. Now I still, my very first precognitive experience is burned into my brain, although it was totally meaningless. Now, now I'm sort of assuming that precognitive abilities are naturally selected through evolution as a survival mechanism. If you can figure out where the hunt's gonna be, where the buffaloes are gonna be tomorrow through your dream or through the shamanic journey, your, your tribe's gonna survive and the other one isn't. Uh, so I think there's a survival you know, uh, selection for people with precognitive abilities. But my first one was totally meaningless. I, 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 I remember um, uh, having a dream on Friday night about four black women and a fat guy throwing beer around a bar. And I was like, I wrote that down in my dream. I've been keeping a dream journal for 30 plus years. So that was probably almost 30 years ago. And, and I, uh, and then I remember the next night was Saturday night. I dozed off in front of the TV set and happened to wake up just in the middle of Saturday night live. And the singing group was in vogue for black women. And the skit that I was watching was Chris Farley in a bar throwing beer at people. And I thought, Whoa, I just did that last night. And of course, it, it has no survival meaning. It has no significance at all. It was just my wake-up call that something like this is actually possible. And since then, I've had many, many precognitive dreams. But the ones that really get my attention are when I have a dream about a tornado. And I live in North Carolina where tornadoes are pretty rare. Almost always after my tornado dream, there's a tornado in North Carolina wow. the next day. And I've had at least at least three or four of those. And and once when I even went up went up to Florida on, on vacation, had a dream about tornadoes in North Carolina. And I was coming back the, the following day, and my plane was rerouted because the the uh, RDU terminal uh, roof had been torn off by a tornado that morning. And I thought, okay. And then I went up to Delaware and was at the beach, and I had a dream about swirling images that I woke up with, and then and that day I, I looked out on the horizon and saw three water spouts. I've been to the beach lots of times. I've never seen a water spout before or since. Interesting. That's cool. You know, Nicole, what you were saying yeah. earlier about 50% of the people need to see these things happen or whatever before they believe them, you know, like Brian, like, you know, if every, if, if this is just a, a thing that's happening all the time, then okay, he's probably going to buy into it. It's the same thing that we were talking about with this 5G causing cancer or 
processed foods or sugar or whatever it is. It's just as a population, like we won't buy into things until I think it's actually like 37% of the population buys into it. Then, then that's when yeah. everybody else will also. And unfortunately, if you're an early adopter, you're exactly. the crazy person, you're the conspiracy theorist, right. <laughs> but it's always the early adopters who help, you know, shape and pave the way for all that information to come out. Um, but, you know, okay, so I'm interested, Larry, if for our audience, what can people do if they've, they've, they're noticing a certain symptom, but there's no real medical explanation for what's going on that they can figure out? Um, how do people address that? Like, what, what would you say is the best way for people to um, approach that to understanding it more? Yeah, when I work with my uh, coaching clients, I, I ask everybody to keep a dream diary because that's one of the simplest ways to get access to that kind of information. And, and on my website, on the homepage, under my, my coaching links, I've got a, a section on dreams. And the very first entry is a blog on interpreting dreams. And it takes you through the steps of how to keep a dream diary. But the most important feature of it is to ask a question every night that you want an answer to. And that sort of sends the message to the dream world that you're open for business <laughs> and you're interested in their input and say, so whatever's on your mind, if it's a physical symptom or a relationship issue or a job thing, write that question down in your journal and, and prompt the dream world to give you something the next morning. And then when you wake up the next morning or if you wake up in the middle of the night, write down whatever you get and then reflect back on how that might be related to your question and work with that. And then, then there's other steps in, on, on my little video and in, in, in the blog there that, that guide you through what, what to do with that information. But that's, that's a pretty simple place to start. Sometimes you'll get a dream which captures your whole situation in one night and it's just like, oh yeah, that, that, that's the explanation. Other times when you're awake and you're looking for messages, you can do imagery work when you're, you know, uh, it sort of simulates the dream world and see what you get through an imagery process working with, with, with a coach or a hypnotherapist to help you uh, gain access to the images and then work with them once they come up. And then also, I, I think synchronicities are, are a big part of the guide, guidance mechanism, you know, hearing what other people have to offer, chance meetings that you have, things that just pop into your awareness that you, that you were previously oblivious to. Yeah, I think that's great advice. I think it's so important for people to prompt with a question because many times, um, you know, it's kind of like if you go into something with no direction, then you're probably going to end up somewhere that you weren't hoping to be. And so providing the question gives you some direction, even on the subconscious level. And I think also that it helps to strengthen the idea that you actually have control over what comes into your awareness if you frame the questions in a way that is helpful for you. But I think that's also one of the problems too, is that some people don't even know what questions to ask. Well, well most people have things they're obsessing over and, yeah. and ruminating about. All you gotta do is turn those into a question and, 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 and ask, for guidance, I think one thing people forget to do uh, is ask for guidance. And there's there's stories about how guides and angels and things like that aren't allowed to, to, to give you any information until you ask for it. 
<laughs> I don't know if that's true or not, but yeah, it makes sense. Yeah, it's called free will. Yeah, it's called yeah, free will. Yeah, you have to ask. <laughs> have to ask for it, or you're not going to get the get the information. Uh, and and also, there's another great quote from Rama Maharshi, who's one of the uh, uh, the Indian saints of, uh, of non-dual uh, philosophy. And when he went, when asked about free will, he had this great response, which sticks with me. He said, "Of course, there's free will." The universe is moving in a certain direction. You have the option of moving with it or not. Uh, and that's your free will. So it's, in other words, either go the easy way or, or go the hard way. Your, your choice. Mm -hmm. Well, I think it's really funny because, you know, you when you were telling the story about the your student who was in the car accident and, you know, you asked her, you know, where she was at. She was at an eight. But then when she thought about it being scarier, it was not losing her life, but trashing her father's car was even scarier than death it it I, my first reaction was like oh my gosh like that's kind of funny that that's it but then i thought back to my own car accident and i remember that i had the exact same reaction that when i i was driving at night i hit a patch of black ice uh coming on an off ramp coming off an off ramp of a highway and my car spun out of control and hit the guardrail of the ramp it hit the guardrail, bounced off. It somehow went back and hit the guardrail. And I couldn't open my door to get out of the car. And my first thought was like, oh, my gosh, the, the car is going to blow up. I got to get out of the car. And I tried kicking the door open and it was freezing outside. I was up in Canada. I was 18 years old. And so I finally like kicked this door open and cars were slowly coming up the off ramp because they saw the accident. And I just started running and over to the side of the road and this man got out of the car and he like grabbed me he's like are you okay and i said my dad's gonna kill me my dad's gonna kill me uh -huh. and, and like that was my first thing that came out of my mouth and he's like no i think your dad's gonna be happy that you're alive and i'm like no you don't know my father he's going to kill me <laughs> i just uh -huh. realized that there are certain fears that we have that totally trump what any normal person would think would be the real fear and that's just part of the programming that i think we don't realize deep within us that there are certain things that are um, steering how we live our life or, or and the choices that we make because of these fears that are embedded in us from, you know, and, and I got to say, my dad, like, never hit me or anything like that. Like, I don't know where that came from other than I think I was just scared of disappointing him, you well, know, just well, scared and, of you know, that. And Gary Craig, developer of EFT, refers to things like that as the writing on our walls. And we all have authority figures who have written stuff on our walls. And some of it can be very traumatic. Other can be subtle, you know. And sometimes even the subtle writing stands out as, as something that, that uh, has a big impact on our life going forward. And that's one of the good things about EFT is you can essentially erase the writing on, on, on your wall um, by... Um, by working with it on that level and and, and not only that does the computer metaphor work but it actually has a basis in neurophysiology and that uh, it's called memory reconsolidation uh, and it's a hot topic in neuroscience at the moment that they really think that every memory that you have is only as old as the last time you remembered it so that when you remember recall a memory and you pull it up and you do something to that memory to alter it by tapping and putting pleasant sensations through your body and then saving that memory again like a computer file, that memory has been altered. And it, 
it's not the same memory. It's, it's been reconsolidated, and that's why things like EFT uh, work on, on a very deep uh, level. And, and I think that's pretty fascinating. Again, that modern science is sort of catching up with with some of the healing techniques that are have been around for for a long time. Yeah, I think I think that's really interesting. It's fascinating. Yeah, what's the basis of the tapping? Because I started tapping, I did the emotional freedom technique when I was in my early 20s. I remember I was in like college and university and I would sit on my bed and I would do the tapping. And I can't remember what it was that I was tapping about, like what memories I was trying to change. But, you know, you talked about, you know, you start over the eyebrow, you go to the side of the eye, under the eye, like the chin, like there's all these different places. What's the purpose of that? How come that's what? Those particular points are, are the end points of the acupuncture meridians. The, the acupuncture meridians end on and begin on the fingers and toes and usually end on the chest and the face. So you're sort of getting access to the whole meridian by, by tapping on, on those particular points. And there are other points that have been used over the years for tapping. Uh, some, sometimes we'll tap on the fingertip points instead, but these seem to be the most potent points and most of the research has been done using those particular points. And there's more and more there's now, when I started out, there was one randomized controlled trial in, in 2002 that hadn't even been published yet. And now there are over 40 randomized controlled trials showing that it works. And some of them are very impressive. Um, Dawson Church is one of the lead researchers in EFT, and, and he did a study with, with military veterans that was published in a mainstream psychiatric journal. And they took 60 veterans who had clinical criteria for PTSD, and they did six sessions of tapping with them over a few weeks, and they had 80% success in decreasing their PTSD scores to below the clinical level in only six sessions. And the previous gold standard for doing that was cognitive behavioral therapy, exposure therapy, uh, which was 12 sessions and the, the success rate was 40%. So oh, Dawson's wow. research was twice as good and twice as fast. And he joked and said, if this was a drug, I'd be on the cover yeah. of the Wall Street Journal. Yeah, right? So true. But uh, this technique doesn't make as much money as drugs, so. <laughs> and, and, and the other key thing is it's a right, self-healing technique. So yourself. when I'm working with, you know, when I'm working as a coach with people, my job is to teach them the technique, and then I tell them, start doing it on your own. I give them homework, and and then when they come back to see me, I'll ask them what phrases they were tapping on, and usually as a coach, my job is to make sure they're tapping on the phrase that makes them the most uncomfortable. So so I tweak people's phrases to like, like I did with a girl in a car accident. It's like, it wasn't just a scary car accident. It was a scary thought. I was going to die car accident. And you'll know that you've got the right program when saying that phrase makes you uncomfortable somewhere in your body. You feel tightness in your chest or in your back or, or your heart races or you get a bad gut feeling. Then you know you've got a good program or not a good program, but, but a potent program that's running that you can, that you can uninstall. And so the key thing is really to connect it back to the body and, and then teach people how to, how to self-heal themselves. And, and that's why I, was, I wrote that recent blog on the, the transforming healthcare is I think that really if we use the, apply the NDE model to what's going on in the healthcare system these days, it's quite fascinating to have watched this over the last 20 years as the, 
the metaphor I'm going to use for the healthcare system is it's a big cancer that's outgrowing its blood supply, which is typically what happens when a cancer gets necrotic and starts to die. It's grown too fast for the blood supply. And of course, in the healthcare system, it's the money supply. And we're, we're sucking up resources so fast into, into high-tech medicine and, and for very little return. And we're attempting to use information technology and electronic medical records to enhance the efficiency of a system that's not working. And eventually that system is going to implode and die. And I think we're already seeing signs of that now. And so what, what are we left with? Well, it's already happening when you look at what happened during Obamacare. Uh, my wife runs a big acupuncture practice here in, in Durham, and when people started getting healthcare coverage through Obamacare, I thought, oh, well, that's going to really hurt her practice because they're all cash-paying customers, and now they can get free coverage you know, under Obamacare. Well, the deductibles went up so high that people realized to access the system at all, they're going to have to pay these big deductibles. If they're going to have to pay cash, they're going to come to my wife and get something that they think is going to work for them <laughs> yeah. and not just get funneled into the into the system and uh, have, have a clinician have 15 minutes to write them a prescription and that's it. Um, so so I think we're already seeing this shift occur as as the system gets so out of whack from a financial point of view. People are going to eventually get so pissed off that they're going to say, oh, the hell with the system, I'm going to take care of myself. I'm going to have to take care of myself. And then EFT, good nutrition, all those sorts of things are going to come into play. And we're going to also see uh, people start to look at symptoms as, wait a minute, maybe I shouldn't be suppressing that symptom. Maybe I'll, I'll pay attention to it. We're going to, uh, through NDE literature and, and exposure to that information, people are going to start losing their fear of death. This is really death, the fear of death that drives the whole system, especially in the last years of life. People are spending billions of dollars attempting to prevent the inevitable and wasting all, that, all those resources. And then we're going to see more people tuning into the importance of electromagnetic fields, either as a health benefit or as a health hazard. And all that thing, stuff is gonna play out in the next Sounds like a positive yeah. outcome to the healthcare I hope collapsing. So. <laughs> well, it has to go, I find it has to go to the extreme for many people to kind of like wake up to it, you know? Like that's, there sometimes has to be crazy chaos to like break it all down, which we just kind of talked about on our last podcast with Aaron about sometimes things need to get completely destroyed in order for it to be burned down and then restart and, and go in a much healthier direction. But you know, you oh, you're, stop- you're, you're, you're prompting me to go in a political yeah, direction. Yeah, I have the, the same, here, I have so. the same <laughs> thought. <laughs> if you want to fasten your seatbelts for a second, I'll, I'll take you down an interesting uh, road here, which I haven't written about this yet, but I, I plan to. Um, so I'm, I'm calling Donald Trump the apocalyptic president. Good. And it's, it's important to realize what the word apocalypse means. It's not Armageddon, which is the end of the world. I know. Of the world. I know where you're going to go with this. Uh, apocalypse means the veil will be lifted. And it's really about revelation. Yep. And, and that's exactly what's been going on, I'd say, for the last five years. It's, I think it started really with Edward Snowden mm -hmm. and WikiLeaks. Uh, releasing all this, the information about how we're being s surveilled and all the other dark stuff that's going on behind the scenes. But then coming into the election cycle, the next thing that happened, which was really important and may have been overlooked, is the movie Spotlight won the Oscar. Yeah. Now, did you all watch Spotlight? No. I mean, it was the amazing movie about the uh, the Boston Globe oh, breaking yes, I did the see story. That. Yeah, yes. with Michael Keaton and... and uh, 
you know, uh, uh, Mark Ruffalo and, and Rachel McAdams. This is amazing. I remember watching that and going, whoa, it's amazing this ever got, got made. Because they point out that when they're doing the forensic research on the, the pedophile priest, that the forensic psychologist goes, well, you can predict that about 10% of the priests in the Boston Diocese will have been reassigned. Because that's the statistic, that 10% of priests are pedophiles. And they're like, like, not just in Boston, but around the world. And, and when you start doing the numbers on that, we're talking millions of priests. And, and so that was a huge, uh, you know, and then at the end of the movie, they roll the credits and they show not just Boston, every city in the country, not just the United States, every country in the world. And there's a billion, you know, plus Catholics. So it's like, that was a huge revelation, which, which I think really began, you know, pushing things in, into the mainstream. And then during the, 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 the debates, uh, uh, during the uh, oh, uh, next thing that happened was the DNC scandal was revealed by WikiLeaks, showing how corrupt democratic you know process was, and, and Bernie's getting screwed. And, and then during the debates themselves, you had both Donald's bimbos being revealed, uh, and and Bill Clinton's bimbos being revealed of all the the sexual you know shadow work that's been going on behind the scenes, and that happens, and then. Uh, as it keeps uh, rolling forward, it just more revelations. I mean, everything that comes out of Trump's mouth is some other random, he's the shadow trickster president. It's like you never know what he's going to reveal next. And, and there's even more stuff coming out every day, and I'm just fascinated to watch. And it's like, this is this is like reality TV at, the, at, the, at, its, at its finest. And uh, I, I, I always say we are in the midst of the greatest movie ever written, like going to be produced. Like we're actually living the the greatest movie that will ever be produced. And, Absolutely. Um, it's I think it's fascinating, and I love, um, I love how everything's getting exposed right now. There's just so much that's been hidden from the public, and when and and it needs a sort of um, not going to play by the rules kind of uh, mentality to unearth it. So and, that's, and I also I also looked at okay, think about what's happened since Trump actually became president. Well. Well, every Confederate statue in the country has been torn down. If Hillary was president, that wouldn't have happened. Uh, it, it's all backlash against Trump. And then the Me Too movement. If Hillary had been elected, there had been no Me Too movement. Everyone would have gone. There would have been this, Hillary had done the same thing for uh, women that Obama did for blacks. Everyone would go, oh, we got a black president. Oh, we got a black president. And nothing would have changed. Yeah. And as it is, things are changing. And it's crazy. Yeah. I, I, I completely agree. And I know, like, you know, whether whether you you like the president or not, you can't deny that I think it's just causing people to wake up to certain things and whatever that is for them, whatever that truth is for them, people are finally like getting off the couch and starting to be a little bit more active about what they believe in, what they don't and what they want to see in this world. And I think that's a really good thing. I think that's positive. And from a Jungian dream perspective, uh, Trump is the ultimate shadow character. And what, what does the shadow character do? They blurt out all the stuff that no one wants to acknowledge exists. Mm -hmm. And they, they, they reveal the shadow. And, and uh, there's a great Jung quote which says, um, if the unconscious remains unconscious, it will control your life and you will call it fate. Mm. <laughs> the, 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 your, the subconscious controls your destiny unless you make it conscious. And then you can control your own destiny. How interesting is that? That's a very interesting statement. I like that. Um, well, speaking of speaking of consciousness, your 
you were mentioned at the beginning of the show that you believe you're starting to believe that the subconsciousness lies within the body. I believe that our consciousness is like subconscious, awaking conscious. It's all embedded in every cell and that our body is one of our greatest messengers to relay what our consciousness is trying to tell us if we're not paying attention to it on an emotional level or a mental level. And that, that finally the body is the last messenger where we have an opportunity to, to pay attention. And that, you know, I, I, cause you know, you talk about frequencies and, and healing the body through that. If you start to change the frequency of your beliefs and, um, even just your physical health, whether it's becoming more loving in how you view yourself, how you view the world, and then you start to use dialogue that's a lot more loving, actions that are a lot more loving, that's going to affect your cellular health as well. I, I believe that. And that that's a result of our consciousness being embedded in every cell. Yeah, and the most fascinating example of that are the stories from heart transplant recipients who, who start to have dreams and, and uh, feelings related to the donor. I don't know if you've heard those stories, but uh, there's a great book. Yeah, there's a book called Change of, Change of Heart and another one called The Heart's Code. And, and, and the most famous one is the, the woman socialite from New York who gets a heart transplant and then develops a craving for chicken nuggets and riding Harley Davidson's. <laughs> and, and, and through some, starts having dreams about the donor and riding motorcycles and, and and you're not really supposed to be able to find uh, the, the identity of donor but someone did some interesting research and discovered uh through tracking down death records on, on the day when she got her heart that that the donor was a a biker who died with uh chicken nuggets in his saddlebags and, and, you know, that's so, yeah, funny that's cool. oh god that's disgusting <laughs> <laughs> God, that's hilarious um, I believe it I totally believe it I mean I just think that we don't give our whole body system enough credit to what it's capable of and if you look at what we're dealt with on a daily basis and how our body responds and is still surviving I think that in itself is a huge miracle um, yeah. but so Larry is there anything that any message that you would like to leave our audience with um, before uh, I would say the, the, the attitude of consciousness that I, I find the most um, beneficial is curiosity. Uh, if you go through life being curious about what your dreams are about, what your symptoms are about, what the synchronicities occur to you, just be open to the magic that, that's out there and be curious. Uh, that is a really healthy perspective to take about almost anything. And uh, also... When you set goals for yourself, be curious as to why you're not achieving them. And one of the things I'm going to mention is that that I, I as part of my coaching program, I, I'm offering a free 40-minute online Skype sessions for people who want to clarify their goals and figure out where they're blocking themselves and figure out if they want to work with me as a coach. So that's they can contact me through LarryBurke.com or or my or my Facebook page, which is. Uh, and just Larry Burke or Larry Burke MD. So that, that's something I'm, I'm having fun doing with people now. So. Oh, awesome! And your books. Uh, where can people get your books? Uh, yeah, I, I can find them through my website as well. And it's uh, Dreams That Can Save Your Life, uh, Early Warning Signs of Cancer and Other Other Diseases. And my first book was 
self-published, and it's available through my website, which is Let Magic Happen, Adventures in Healing with a Holistic Radiologist, and it goes through my transition from mainstream radiology into holistic medicine, parapsychology, and other things, and there's chapters on hypnosis and acupuncture and EFT, and and oh, my favorite chapter in there is on mass hypnosis, which is a topic that I'm sure you'll be uh, resonate with, which is basically what happened since 9-11 uh, with the, the trance of fear that's been you know, propagated throughout the whole country and how we've been struggling for the last what is it, 18 years to break out of that trance. Oh, well, that's really interesting. Yeah. Uh, mass hypnosis is a real phenomenon. And, uh, and there's things in the popular conscious which suggest that we're waking up for, from, from that whole uh, conversation. But it's... Uh, I mean, hypnosis can install some potent programs that, that take a lot to uninstall them. Hopefully we're heading in that direction. Yeah. Wow. Well, I'll leave all of that information in our show notes, too, to our audience members. So if you uh, want to look Larry up or contact him, we'll put all of that information in the show notes. And thanks so much, Larry, for being on the show. The great information yeah. and really interesting to hear your perspective and point of view yeah. on everything. Excellent. I will leave you with one thought. Every chapter in my first book uh, begins with a quote from Pierre Teilhard de Chardin, who was the Jesuit uh, mystic and, and, and scientist uh, who died in 1955. And he uh, envisioned uh, in his writings the development of the noosphere, which is the consciousness of the earth. And since he was fascinated by technology, many people attribute uh, that he predicted the uh, development of the internet as being a manifestation of the global, you know, brain. Uh, but one of his main visions uh, and teachings that he left us with was that we are converging toward the omega point, which is the evolutionary goal of, of the development of consciousness. So that's that's where we're headed. It's a good place that's to go. Great, I yeah, love it. Really, really yeah, interesting. It's a good place to go. Yeah. Thanks so much, Larry. Thank you. Uh, and all right. to all of our listeners, uh, if you need any more information about us, please head on over to our website, enlightenup.us. And of course, if you have questions that you'd like for us to ask online to our guests, if we have guests coming on and, and we feel that your question will be pertained to get a really good answer, uh, we'll be asking them on the air. So you can send all of your questions or even topic ideas to our email, info at enlightenup.us. All right, everyone. Uh, great to be with you. And we will be back with you again next week. Bye, everyone. Bye. <laughs> Bye-bye. Bye.